me, meditation's played a huge role in my life and quiet and aimless walks. And when I do those things, I'm able to get out of the kind of, you know, full force of society that's coming at you on phones. I would say my phone is a bother, but it's also a crutch, you know, for for people. And it is for me too, because when I'm sad or when things aren't like top, like I I will like to look on TikTok for 30 minutes because I'm going to laugh. So I've actually learned to use things that I think. Welcome to the Freedom Chasers podcast, where we bring you interviews and discussions that share the stories, successes, goals, and dreams of real estate agents and real estate investors pursuing a life of purpose and freedom. All right, guys, we are so stoked to have Jonathan Green on the show today. The stuff that we're going to talk about is going to be exciting, entertaining. And the thing that I love most is a lot of times when you do guest introductions, you talk about how many units somebody has and what they built, what they own. We're not even going to ask that today because Jonathan Green doesn't care how many units he owns. He's had so much success and doing it the right way real estate attorney turned investor that has just built an unbelievable portfolio based on building quality relationships, doing things right, and giving tons of value. So we have our our list of questions ready. Jonathan, we are so stoked. But if you'll start us out with the craziest real estate transaction or experience that you had so far in your career. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate you guys having me on the show. I'm excited to be here. Craziest, there's a lot of them. But I would say crazy as if you want a story of me getting in my own way, it's a fair one because most people want to give their like, oh, this is my best success story. I have lots of those, but like I really crapped the bed in 2008 when I shouldn't have. And I, uh, I had lived in a house, like I know we're going to talk about, done like all these amazing things to it. I built a back house. I built like this lagoon pool. It was like my favorite house that I've ever built. And we were planning on moving from Florida back to New York. So I put it on the market for, this is before I was licensed as a, as a realtor as well. So we put it on the market for 2.4 million. And I was like, this is the best house ever. Someone's going to, you know, pay me this. And this is, we're still like about four months before the economy dropped out. Uh, and I was way overpriced. I didn't listen to my agent's recommendations on the comps. It was probably worth at the time around 1.5 but I was pompous, you know, and I, I thought that I did the best job. It was a really cool house, but it wasn't that cool. Mm-hmm. Um, so we got an offer in the first week of 1.4 and I was like, oh, I'm so offended. What a jerk. You know, this is disgusting. <laughs> My house is so much better. You know, don't even counter. Didn't counter. Two weeks later or so, the economy dropped out. 2008 started coming. Uh <laughs> The house sat around. I went through three agents because of my own ineptitude, which helps me a lot as an agent now. Uh, never got even close to 1.4. Ended up selling like in the eights somewhere <laughs> and just burying myself. And I mean, it's a 2008 story. So like a lot of people like got bankrupted. I was fine. I just didn't like make any money and I lost some money on that. But I think it's a good... Uh, it's a good representation of getting in your own way as an investor, real estate agent, flipper, whatever have you. I was so interested in what I was doing that I wasn't paying attention to the experts in the field. And now as an agent who runs a team with 50 agents on it, I can tell you like, they know what they're doing. They're running the comps. They're giving you the numbers that's gonna help you sell. You need to listen. (laughs) I didn't listen, but I learned my lesson. Oh, how amazing. So. Not amazing for you, obviously, but the learning lessons uh, that, you, that you take from it. I learned a lot. Yeah, I mean, I, I was 
I had been investing my whole life. So having a couple crap transactions over my life has been okay for me. But I, you know, as I got into the investing sphere and helping investors, I want to prevent them from doing, you know, what I actually had a little more leeway to do. It wasn't going to break me because uh, actually I had another house doing the same at the same time. So it wasn't a fun time, but I was, I was well-placed to not have it be a big deal for me. Awesome. So I want to start diving into some of your maybe non-conventional stances on real estate that I think are so valuable. One of which is like, you generally place less priority on the spreadsheet that analyzes a deal and more on the feel. This is a pretty good example of where feel can, can help here. Can you take us in to when, when someone's new to the game, new to the investing game, and they're analyzing data? Can you define your process, but even maybe more importantly than your process, can you define what data are you taking in as you learn to become a good investor? Yeah, great question. I think it helps all levels of investors. I think the problem is that everybody new and even as they're getting up is just running numbers that they're given online. They're not even going to look at the properties. So to me, like if you haven't seen 50 properties, how can you be trying to buy one? As a regular home buyer, sure, you can get up to 10 properties, but like as an investor, you should really be kicking the tires because what's going on a flip spreadsheet if you're flipping is repair costs. And I can just tell you after 30 years of looking at properties, hundreds a year, I'm still, it's still not easy to do repair costs because they're not all obvious, but for somebody brand new, they have absolutely no clue how much anything costs. So how can you even look at a spreadsheet that tells you what the ARV is going to be and what the price is now if you have no idea what's the difference between a $50,000 renovation and a $150,000 renovation? Because there goes your whole profit. So I'm not saying it's easy to go by feel when you're brand new, but the reason why people get in analysis paralysis and number crunch too much is because they're just not looking at properties. They're looking at data. And just because the data is there doesn't mean the data is correct. You can list the house for whatever you want to get for it. You can, you can get verified comparable sales for the out value, but if you don't know the repair value and you don't know if it's a reasonable ask on the price, you know, you're pretty much just spinning your wheels for numbers to say, Hey, I've run data on a hundred properties. Great. The data was probably wrong on 99 of them. So you're not, you're not getting anything done until you go into houses. Um, and one thing I'll say is as a brand new investor, I think it is hard to get someone to show you a bunch of dumps, but that's why you look for investor friendly realtors who are investors themselves. Like for someone like me, I like, I like looking at dumps. I like looking at any house because any house I can learn something. And I think those are the type of agents that investors should look for. And agents who like working with investors should be open to teaching investors by showing them instead of telling them, Hey, hit your spreadsheet all night and then just tell me which one you like and make four low balls. It's not, you're not going to learn anything doing that at all. 100% correct. Um, what a tremendous answer. I mean, obviously the field is so important and the data is so important, but I think you can certainly relate to this. I mean, there's far more to analyzing a deal than just the data and the numbers. Like that's the science aspect of an analyzing a deal, but there's also mm -hmm. an yeah. art essence. Um, when you're when you're looking up this information as well, because you need to find you know the best use. Is this currently the best way to use the property and things of that nature? So we talk about how you get into the art of deal analysis versus the science of it. Yeah, and I 
I do think of houses as art, you know, I, in between being a, an attorney and I was a, a prosecutor for eight years, criminal defense attorney for two. And it, before I got into real estate, really full time on both ends, I was in the art world for six years and I'm into design and aesthetics. And to me, the way to become a good, at least on the flip end and even on a burr side is to understand, like you said, what are the opportunities inside this house? That's how you can make a lot of deals. So when I'm looking at it, it's not just like kind of the art of the deal and how I can figure out how it works. It's the, the function of the property. Um, I think a lot of people think they can do things that they can't in real estate. Like they see a two family and they're like, oh, that's cool. I'll just turn it into a three family. Like cities don't want you to do that. Permitting doesn't want you to do that. Lots and lots of investors have bought properties thinking they could do an ADU or something because they watched a YouTube video on it. And in practice, it's not how it works. So for me, it's the functionality of the house as it is. Where can I remove something or move uh, a kitchen to some other location, which my project manager and best friend Jenny does all the time. Those are the ways that you can beat out other people who don't have the vision that you do. But again, you, you can't get to the art phase unless you're looking a lot and you can't work on feel unless you're in houses a lot because you have no feel. You just have numbers and numbers are wholly irrelevant over the scale of the country. So if you, if you read a lot of books, which I do, I love reading real estate investing books. You just can't use the numbers in the books because mar they're market specific. So I can't tell you what it's going to do to cost to do a flip in Topeka, Kansas or Omaha, Nebraska. I can tell you what it's going to cost here, but I need to know the local contractors there. And that's where the misnomer is that you can calculate like per square foot renovation. That's for cookie cutter stuff. And like that doesn't do it for me <laughs> at all. Absolutely love it. Yeah. And so essentially your stance is that vision is something that you build, not something maybe you're born with and you create that vision by the seeing of the houses. So when you're going to look, you're saying, how is this layout and how does that affect sales price compared to other layouts until you've done so many reps that it becomes second nature as to what is the best type of product that that market is, you know, has demand for. Yeah. And remember, I mean, depending on what you think you're going to do at the property, you're looking at it differently. If I'm doing a straight flip, the way that I evaluate what I want to do, removing a wall, making a, a more open floor plan and modernizing it is much different than if I'm looking at it as a rental. If I'm looking at it as a rental, I'm looking at it for durable and, and spending the least amount of money to get the biggest return. So, you know, I do like all properties to have two out strategies. And obviously with Airbnb being so popular, short-term rental, mid-term rental, it gives you a lot of scale on multifamilies because if you're looking at multifamilies now, anywhere, I would be thinking I want a long-term renter in one side, short-term renter in the other side. So when I'm thinking on a durability aspect, okay, more turnover, I need it to be more durable on the short-term rental side. It still needs to be durable on the multifamily side on the, on the long-term renter, but that's going to be you know, one tenant a year at most, as whereas you could have 20, 30, 40 tenants a year on the other. And I think that's, that's just part of the feel process too. What are the opportunities here and what's the backup plan and is what I'm planning on doing inside this house going to work for both if I need to activate the backup plan? Oh my gosh. Like I'm super excited about this. So when you talk about durability, are you talking about the condition of the property being durable or are you talking about 
the fact that you don't want to have months where income's not coming in. So you have one element that's stable income and one income that's like more of a home run, feast or famine type yeah. of income. I mean, I, that's a great point. I, I, I am talking about the physical durability of the houses and the stuff that you put in and the choices that you make. Like, I'm not going to put in the fanciest stuff in a rental because that's just stupid. Unless I'm in an extremely high rent, you know, high rent area, I still need it to be more durable. It's like carpet. You can't put carpet in a ton of rentals unless you're doing it on purpose to prevent the noise. And I'd still recommend using LVP and then putting rugs over the top to prevent the noise because it's not durable. Carpet, I don't want to move in and have someone else's carpet. That's gross. And they're like, oh, I cleaned the carpet. I mean, arguable, but like still, I don't want someone's five-year-old carpet. So I am thinking on the durability portion of the actual like physicality of the house. But I love your point. I mean, to me, like... I, I need it to be an understanding that the, the house is a, an asset in multiple classes for me. If I, if I mess up and I can't flip it, then I can rent it straight out. Okay, you look at the rental market, say you have a backup plan. But you know, like I said, and what you reemphasize is that short-term rentals and midterm rentals are just great backup options, if not your number one. And when you're buying a two, three, or four family, which are still residential products, you really have the opportunity to experiment like you said, the more units you have, if you're up at three and four, you can take a risk on doing one short-term rental because you still have income coming in on the other. And that's like the fun part of being an investor. Like, let me just play around with what I have here a little bit instead of just kind of taking the easy road, which a lot of people want to because they think the easy road is passive. But like real estate investing is not passive. I hate to break it to everyone, but <laughs> just try not. being a landlord once and you'll find out in about four seconds that it's not passive. Unless you Absolutely. want to pay a lot for it to be passive. Absolutely. You and I share a perspective that I don't see very commonly. And so that's one of the joys of doing this interview with you is that not only do you have maybe some unique perspectives, but there are perspectives that I also share that I'm so happy to see another person hold, which is Good. you kind of thwart the specialization model where people say, I'm a multifamily guy and that's all I do. And I think you and I both have that same, like, gosh, like how boring um, is that? And so you have bought assets in every different class. Can you describe why that strategy, what joy you get from it, and how does it also play in as an, a benefit long-term? Yeah, and we did, we were laughing about it on the pre-call, but I think there's nothing wrong with being a specialist. Like being a specialist, I think is the best way to scale in and focus on what you want to do, but you also have to understand your personality. And my personality is I get bored really easily. So if I just have the same asset class, I'm not even going to like it. I'll just sell them. I just get too bored. I like learning things. Like I'm just like an oddity. I've taken like, you know, that masterclass, the company masterclass.com. I've literally finished like 35 masterclasses mm -hmm. and people always ask like why are you doing that you know don't you have to be working i'm like that's work i need to just learn stuff and i feel the same about real estate you know i like flipping but i don't want to only do flipping because it's frustrating i don't enjoy being a landlord particularly so i don't want to hold a ton of rentals we sold off a lot of them i like the idea of airbnb and short-term rental but like it's also it takes a lot so then i start thinking about okay self-storage is interesting you know, mobile home parks don't appeal to me, but I still learn everything I can about them. And then I just want to know it's from a boredom perspective for me, but I just believe in diversification. I think like if you're a real estate investor and you want to go the long haul, you can get really good just being a specialist. 
but I do think eventually you could have a, a much bigger major loss if you're a specialist. If you hold all the same asset classes in the same area and that area just undergoes something crazy, they turn up some environmental problem like you're done. So I like the option of having a couple different things to to work with and then growing it and learning about it. I don't I don't buy stuff that I don't know about, although I'm open to it. <laughs> I just learn about it and then try to figure it out, you know, taking educated risks along the way. Oh, I love that answer so much. Um, we obviously align very closely there. So, I mean, we are the Freedom Chasers podcast. Yeah, of yeah. course, obviously we talk about real estate investing, but our primary goal is to get people to design and live the very best life possible for them. And that is going to look different for everybody. Yeah. Um, can we talk about like, when do you know when it's the right time to try something new when you're going through one of these boredom um, situations, because you know, it's, it's like, when do you move on to the next activity? Do you know you're done with the one that you've already started? Like, because I run into this problem constantly. Yeah. I think it, it tells me when I'm getting more and more aggravated for the same issues, it's tenant tenants to me, like tenants are annoying. No offense to all the tenants out there, but like as a landlord, it's annoying. It's if you do a good job as a landlord, it's less annoying. But like a lot of landlords want their cake and eat it too, which is like they do a crappy job as a landlord and they don't want any complaints and they don't want to fix it. And then they want to sell it high. Like none of these things go together. So, you know, you either implement a plan like the book, Who Not How, and you replace yourself with somebody else who can do the job better. Like my sister and I managed many, many properties together for multiple years. And she was tenant facing in terms of handling the rent. And if there was a legal situation, I would handle the eviction and I would handle anything else after that. And then we hired a property manager because we knew what our strengths were and none, neither of us want to talk on the phone to anybody at any time. So knowing that I need to set up short-term rentals to, to work with that as well. So for me, it's just that kind of feeling like I hate this product. I hate this product. And then it's like, okay, let me try something that's a little, a little bit different. And that's why I think you have to be open to what's out there and learning more about everything. And that's what got me interested in, you know, mixed use uh, as opposed to just multifamily, because I was like, Ooh, we've had a mixed use my whole life. And I, well, it was actually just straight commercial, but I was, I started to see the possibilities when I used to look with my dad of all these like units upstairs. So I pretty much was looking at mixed use my whole life. And now I'd like to activate it more because I think it's like a, a hotbed that people don't really understand because it's not, it's, it's a commercial asset and your regular house hackers and multifamily investors are looking for residential assets, but you can find even better assets in that mixed use class. I think. Okay. We will definitely hit the mixed use class. <laughs> yeah. I do have a pressing question on my mind that, that I want to get out there. Sure. And so the whole purpose of life by design and freedom is, is to create greater meaning, greater joy, you know, all those types of things. As a person who is constantly facing boredom, Tim and I can relate to this on such a high level. Um, how would you maybe rate, calculate, define, like as you're continuing to shift, do you feel like you're on a linear positive progression towards a happier life? Like you feel happier today than five years ago? And yes. how are, and, and so can you describe like, what is life like for Jonathan Green today? And maybe how did that contrast to life for Jonathan Green 10 years ago? Yeah, I love that question because I think it's all bigger than what it seems. To me, I grew up like extremely like a rigid human being. 
Um, I'm like a low, low on the spectrum, uh, like with a little Asperger's. So I have things that are like, I just can't get out of my own way on. Um, and I've really learned to adjust to that and take it into account. Uh, and I think I started the biggest thing that I've learned everything in life is about self-awareness and the, the less self-aware you are, the less successful you'll be in order to get myself happier and create the life by design that I wanted. I had to be real honest with myself about what I'm good at, what I suck at and where I'm not helping people. And I, I kind of readjusted by adding meditation. I've been meditating daily for like five years. I never miss a day. Um, and I just think I slowed down my life. My dad always told me growing up, don't rush life. And I was like, oh, you know, be quiet. And both my parents passed away. So I really have, I have to look back on this stuff and appreciate what I have now and take in what they told me at a young age to, to just create it. And I'm still working on it. But yeah, like five years ago, I was rigid. 10 years ago, I was really rigid. Now I get annoyed at stuff, but I know how to put processes in place to help myself build a better life. So I still work a crap ton, but I also know that I'm working in an, a field that I uh, I'm like obsessed with. I love real estate. So going to work or sitting and working all day, I'm having fun. <laughs> I don't know what everybody else is doing, but I enjoy it. Love this. And you mentioned like knowing what you're good at and what you're not. It's hard for me to think that there isn't thing, anything that you're you know not good at. Criminal defense attorney, successful, you know, agent. I get bored a lot. I told you. <laughs> it's, it's unbelievable. You're probably the most highest functioning Asperger's person I've ever met if you're on that spectrum. Uh, it's just, it's incredible. One of the things well, that I think you though, said- It's interesting though. Sorry. If you, if you look at the spectrum, uh, obviously I- you know, it's not a testable thing to me, but like people on the spectrum can go really, really crazy in certain areas of being successful. And I think it's, I'm obviously like, I've been able to get through life fine, uh, but not behind the scenes. Like things are more mm. difficult for me, but I, it's self-awareness when somebody finally unlocked that and said, Hey, do you want to do some testing on this? You know, I was like, Oh, okay. I literally unlocked the first 30 to 35 years of my life as like, all these things that I was butting my head up against, I didn't have as much control over as I thought. I'd like to go a little bit deeper into this. And then Tim, let's get to your question. So essentially, because I have some friends that are on the spectrum and I've never been tested, but I think there's some possibilities that I might, might be there as well. And so what particularly for you was unlocked? Because I know Asperger's can relate to social challenges and things of that nature. Can you describe maybe the top one to three things that you overcame through your self-awareness work that has made a huge difference for you? I would say that I didn't overcome as much as become aware of that it's okay. Not like I don't ever want to be in crowds. I don't want to talk on the phone. I don't talk on the phone. I either do Zoom or text. I started to be able to relay what my comfort level was with certain things was. Um, I have a crazy memory. People think that's like really, really good. And it's good for the good things and it's not good for the bad things. So to be able to adjust to those things, if you remember everything, everything is a trigger to something that has either good or bad happened, including bad deals. So you can go down a real rabbit hole of, of beating yourself up because you can't get the mess up out of your mind. And I think I've just made it okay. Like I'm just always been fine with messing up, you know, as long as it's not major, or it didn't hurt anyone. I, I, I can accept my own, you know, failures cause I can learn from them. But I think 
just someone telling me like, hey, you maybe don't have as much control over this rigid nature. Like it's not you. You're just fighting against something. Um, and it's just, it's just a lot. I mean, I, it's like if people were to say like, hey, do you want to go to, I'm, a, I'm an INTJ, so super introvert. You know, do you want to go to a party? I will say, absolutely not. I don't ever want to go to a party. Uh, and then they'll say, but you can speak on stage. I'm like, exactly. <laughs> I can speak on stage and then I can leave and I go to my room. Like if I go to events, everyone's like, hey, what happened to you? Where were you? There's all these parties. I'm like, yeah, I was just in my room watching TV and doing work, you know? So, uh, you know, it is not a, no one's going to, you can't take a blood test and say this is there. And I only learned later in life. So it's not like an extreme formal thing, but in the testing that I've done, it's very apparent and it helped me adjust the way that I do business as well, because I can be harsh in business and you can't be that way in real estate. You can be that way as a prosecutor, uh, but you have to focus on the client in real estate. And that's where I had to back out like my rigidity to make sure that I'm paying attention to the client and working, you know, good with other agents in the business and not, you know, carrying my rigidity through that. Absolutely. First off, thank you so much for your candor and for sharing all this information with us. Oh, my I pleasure. am in total agreement with you in terms of self-awareness. So I'm bipolar and being self-aware of that and, and identifying the strengths and weaknesses has been the catalyst really for my success because I think oftentimes people with a mental disorder, mental illness, whatever you want to identify it as, if you actually get really good at defining it and becoming self-aware, you could turn it into an advantage. And it seems like you have done that to a degree. So what I would love to ask you is like, you talk about self-awareness so much, what specific strategies have you used in order to identify who you are correctly? Because it's one of the most challenging things to do. Yeah. Um, I mean, to me, meditations played a huge role in my life and quiet and aimless walks. And when I do those things, I'm able to get out of the kind of, you know, full force of society that's coming at you on phones. I would say my phone is a bother, but it's also a crutch, you know, for, for people. And it is for me too, because when I'm sad or when things aren't like top, like uh, I will like to look on TikTok for 30 minutes because I'm going to laugh. So I've actually learned to use things that I think people have different connotations on and said like, you know what, this is what works for me. I, my parents raised me extremely well to be open. I never had any rules. I was open to everything. And I think that, um, I was just always confident. And I think sometimes people, even especially if I'm a guest on podcasts and then I, I look in the things that, oh, that guy's kind of a jackass. I, I'm definitely not a jackass. I'm pretty nice in real life. I just, I'm not afraid of my own opinions. And I'm not, I don't have any like crazy opinions, but like when it comes to something that I've, you know, hit the tipping point and done more than 10,000 hours on, like, I know what I'm talking about. So I don't need to like shy away from being confident about an industry that I've spent my whole life in. And, you know, if that ruffles some feathers, like I'm okay with that. Um, so I, you know, like you said, but I really think like when it comes to mental illness or, or things like the spectrum, you know, learning to be open about it, it's so much better now than it was, you know, 10, 20 years ago talking about mental illness, it's such a thing. And it's, it shouldn't, it's just, you know, it, a lot of people are dealing with issues, whether it's sadness, depression, uh, and it can affect your business. So when we're talking about business and chasing freedom, you're never going to be fully free if you're just, you know, not okay with the way that you are. 
and I don't want to hide behind it. And I think it's just hard when you get there's some, like Chris Smith who who runs Curator with Jimmy Mackin. He like a year or a couple of years ago, he found out he was bipolar as well. He's very open about it now. And to me, even you saying that, I just think it's it just helps other people to to know that you can do business. You know, you can you're just going to have to work on yourself. And I think until I really started working on myself, I I wasn't going to be as good a parent. And that was important to me to understand, like I to be the best parent, I need to be the best self for myself and to be a good partner. You have to be working on yourself. And now I'm just obsessed. I can't stop. And I, I never think I know everything. I just want to learn more stuff like a lot. <laughs> totally. One of the things that like I love about what you said is that you're not scared to have your own opinions, right? Like you're confident. So one of the conversations we had early on when we started shooting podcasts, we ended up getting into a discussion about the, the tension or the balance between humility and confidence. And how a lot of times I think sometimes there might even be some misdefinitions of what humility is. And, and the conversation kind of moved in a direction of a lot of times people take humility as like lowering yourself and kind of what we settled on in that conversation is that humility has nothing to do with lowering yourself or devaluing your opinions it has everything to do with being coachable and trainable. And yet you can, you could be of the highest levels of confidence and still be at the highest levels of humility. Like, would you agree with that statement? Yeah. I mean, I think that you learn, you can learn humility. I mean, I've learned empathy because I'm not good at it. You know, I, I've had to learn those things, but yeah, I think you can do both. And again, I think it all goes back to your own personal self-awareness and your willingness to like do the work on yourself, but also, you know, transpose that with others. How do I work with others? I'm a very hard negotiator, but I can't negotiate always the way that I want because it's off-putting to others. But I do think there's like this perception out there that confidence is arrogance and not tipping point work. If someone's done 10,000 hours of work on something, they should be confident in what they do. And what I tell my agents on my team, who again, they only stay on my team if they're coachable, is that you need to do a daily market research on the market. And the more you research every house that comes on the market, the easier your phone calls are going to be, the easier your showings are going to be. And it's the same for investors. That's why we were saying at the beginning, if you've seen 20 houses, when you go into house number 21, you're going to feel more confident. If you're just running numbers on a computer, on a spreadsheet, and you can't even see the pictures of the houses, how you're not, you're just, you know, doing a video game. And I like spreadsheets. I run my whole life by spreadsheets, but everything that I put on the spreadsheet is something that I've done. And I'm using it to calculate what I do so I can look at the end of the year and say, okay, I meditated, whatever, 37.1 minutes a day. I know those stats for the last five years. I'm crazy like that, but that's how I know what I'm going to accomplish each year. And again, if you're chasing freedom, this is the way that you get to freedom. It's freedom of time uh, and freedom of mind, you know, and freedom to like, thank thankfully, like be myself and not worry what other people think. My team bought me a for la I don't know what they're going to get me this year, but last year they got me a bunch of gear that says ILDNC and it stands for, I literally do not care because that's my answer to a lot of things. When people say, how do you just go on? You know, I've, I've made 200 YouTube videos. I've never edited one. I turn the thing on, I record the video and then I publish it. And they're like, Oh, aren't you worried about how, you know, how your hair looks? I'm like, I just literally do not care. I just want to give information out to people. And I think that's, what's helped me do, you know, quote, well inside the investment field. I'm not for everybody, but if you want an honest opinion, 
I'm going to give it to you. If you don't like it, I don't care. Just trying <laughs> to help. Cause I, I, there's, there's no reason for me to give you an opinion that wouldn't be honest. Like what's my, what's my gain in it? I'm not, you know, if someone says, Hey, how's this deal? Uh, you know, in Washington state. And I say, it's terrible. I'm looking at the photos versus the numbers and it's not coming together. And they're like, Oh, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> you came to me. <laughs> That's right. just, I, it's like, I'm not flying to Washington to buy your deal. I'm just telling you, based on my 30 years of experience, looks like a disaster. Don't buy it. You know, people Love like it. to be yes along. And I, they I, sure I, do. Find, I find no to be a very powerful word in all aspects and also one that will get you more time in your life than you can ever imagine if you just learn to say no to the things you never wanted to do in the first place. Gosh, and that's a topic and a conversation all in and of its own. Um, one of the things that I'd like to to dive into that you mentioned is that you would recommend for people starting out that they actually pursue relationship building over hiring a coach. And I would like to get more context and color on that. Yeah. And I've actually, on my podcast, uh, Zen in the Art of Real Estate Investing, I've had some guests who, who've paid the big money like up front and they've gotten stuff out of it because they were willing to do the work. What I've found, and the reason why I always say you can just build relationships for a solid one to two years, use forums and not spend anything is because I don't think you really know what you're doing for a long time. So when people hire a coach and they don't know what they're doing, they're looking for motivation or accountability. You still don't know what you're doing. So what do you need to pay someone to tell you to show up every week and read a book? You can do that on your own. You just don't want to. So I prefer, and I think that your best scale for paying for coaching is when you have a business that's starting to go well and you want it to go better and you want to take it to another level. That's the best spend of the money. People, you can definitely be sex, successful buying into a coaching program early, but you have to be like motivated to do the work. And everyone who's successful paying the $50,000 coaching fee right away, they'll tell you every single time. The reason they're successful is because what they did inside that coaching portal was build the relationships with every person in there, including the person who's the coach. Those are the winners. So it's not that I have changed a little bit based on what I've heard, because I think you can spend. And if you're willing to do the work, you're probably going to do pretty well in most of these programs and let, except the ones that are like clearly just a fake out. But there's great programs out there that maybe I don't want to spend on. But if someone's motivated and can spend, it's going to work. But you, you, it works because you talk to everybody in there, mm -hmm. find out what they did, why they're there, and learn from the coach. Like, okay, this is a real life. And again, if you want to get coached by someone, make sure they've done what you want to do. Because there's a lot of fake coaches, fake gurus out there that haven't, you know, done everything. And they still want to sell you on a forty, fifty thousand dollars program. You know, show me what you've done and let me see the tangible assets. And I'm okay with it. And, and like you started, don't count the doors. Because the doors are a product of a lot of different like syndications and relationships. If you're in a syndication that owns 300 doors, you don't have 300 doors. Let me just break that down for you. That's not a way of counting your doors. If you own 1% of 300 doors, that's it's not happening. You know, it's just that that's where I find the fallacy of everyone trying to puff their chest. Just be what you are. You know, you can go on my bigger pockets profile and see what properties I own. And right now it's not a lot because I sold them all off during the pandemic because I'm smart. And the, the money was there. So we took the money. Absolutely. Um, before a question, I just wanted to comment on that. Like the amount of value that you provide to the community for free on YouTube and bigger pockets, podcasts, like the freedom chasers. And 
it's just absurd because you don't have the CTAs like everybody else does. You have almost no ask. You're just attracting people and, have, and people I, just I come to you. And, and it's just, it's amazing the, the support that you're giving to the community as a whole. Um, I am in total that. agreement with you. Like if I looked back on my career, relationships by far, I mean, it's not even close, exponentially influenced my career more than any other skill or activity that I ever did. So, I mean, you had mentioned bringing value to a mentor in order to get coaching for free, essentially, I believe on the bigger pockets yep. episode, I would love to dive into strategies and how to identify a mentor and what kind of value you could bring to them so that you could establish that relationship without paying that 50 K upfront cost. Yeah, that's a great question. I think if you look at all of the strong mentors and the stories that you've seen from Rich Dad, Poor Dad to how Brandon Turner got started, the mentorship comes from relationships. Like you said, if I'm somebody who wants to be mentored in real estate investing, I'm going to go in my head and I'm going to think of every skill that I have. First, what's my day job? What skills do I have in my regular jobs up to this point that I can use as a real estate investor or to help a real estate investor? Like if you're a contractor, you're already built in. You can help them fix stuff. You don't want to try to take over. They have contractors. You're going to do some knickknack work, handyman stuff to get in to say like, hey, I want to see what you do. If you have accounting background, there you go. You can run numbers probably better than someone. You're going to be a high C. You know, if you're if you have just say you're young, you're like 18, 19, you graduated high school, you don't really know what your skill set is now. You have a skill set. It's called hustle. Are you willing to drive for dollars? Are you willing to knock on doors? Are you willing to get trained to have regular conversations with sellers? Can you go out and identify properties that look like crap? You give them a list of things to look for and you do it. Everybody has some value that they can bring. That's why real estate investing is so interesting. You don't need an educational background to become a good investor. You have to be coachable and willing to do the work. So I want, I just feel like it's like a 50-50 for those of us who get a lot of DMs or we get a lot of like offers, it's just half is like, hey, how do I become a real estate investor? That's boring to me. I mean, I don't know. I don't know anything about you. What do you mean? Get You have you need money, first of all, or, or skill set to get in. But the better questions are, hey, I've done X and Y. I've tried this. I have this available. I'd love to help you for free. If there's any way I could just swing by one of your jobs once because People who are successful do like to talk about themselves, but they do want to help other people. And I really think that if you want to be helped, you have to help someone else. It's just too hard to come in and just put your hand out and say, help me without any background on why. And if there's a good story around it, I mean, I'm into that too. But I think you have to come with a presentation. And I think everybody across who gets a ton of emails and DMs, the ones who come with the best presentation will will get somewhere. I mean, just listen to Tim Ferriss. I'm sure you guys have listened to his podcast plenty. If you listen to his podcast, he basically said for years, don't send me stupid emails. If you send me a well-crafted email, I'm probably going to read it because it's interesting to me. And I think if you, if you go with that perspective in anything, building partnerships, building relationships, you're just going to get deeper much faster. Uh, and that's, that's a great way to kind of focus in on how to get it done without spending a $50,000 uh, or offending someone by thinking they have the time to just give you stuff for free when you have nothing to offer them. A hundred percent. And the thing that like seems so like there's so much cognitive dissonance between this idea in America where 
people send their kids to college. People choose to go to college and spend a hundred to 200 grand, sometimes less, but, but usually in that range to work. So they're, they're doing four years of work or more for free. And it's not even free because they're paying a hundred to, but they won't turn around on the same breath and say, I'll work for you for free. And that, that's what's exactly. so weird. To, and it's like, are you kidding me? Like, this is real life stuff. You don't have to pay me hundred. Like if someone came to me and was genuine and sincere, and like you said, they give us a story. So we know that there's a likelihood of success and say, Hey, I'll work for you for, for not, it doesn't have to be four years, like six months, you know, for free. It's like, you could change that person's life. Um, so I, I just think this topic is so valuable because if there was a model shift and less people went to college and came to people like you who were so successful and gave the same 40 to 60 hours a week they would give to school, their trajectories exactly. would be hundred X better than going to college. I mean, Eric Spolstra, the Miami heat coach, how he got started. You can see that I read everything in the entire world, but yep. he, he volunteered to do film for free. And then whatever, eight years later, he was the head coach of the Miami heat. You, you have to be willing to do the work and support yourself another way. And that's what I think is interesting about investing. The smartest people, they, they crush it at their regular job and they, they develop enough time on the side for real estate investing. The people who fail quickly are the ones who jump too quickly or say like, I don't have any money, but I want to be an investor. It doesn't, it doesn't work like that. You know, you have to go through the trenches like everyone else, but it's just, you know, I think it's a mount. It, it is tough. It, this is a tough you know, time in society because there's so much FOMO from social media and it looks like everyone's a successful real estate investor when half of it is BS, you know, half of it's real, but like all those people aren't really millionaires, you know, it, there's leverage and there's bad leverage and good leverage. So it's really about what you have on both. But yeah, I mean, this is a great conversation. I feel like if you really want to chase freedom, it's going to be about all the things that we've talked about. We've kind of put it all in a nutshell for someone and you can take that to real estate and real estate investing. But again, like you guys said, you're trying to get a better life. And the people who come on my team, I don't want them to be just successful at real estate. Our core value number one is family, never changes. Don't care about anything else before that. If they need to take care of their family, that's gonna come first. And that's why we have the support of the team behind there. And that's why you wanna build relationships. So you have people who are willing to help you when things aren't like, you know, perfect in your life. Okay. All right. I, I wasn't sure if I was going to go here, but I, I have to now. <laughs> I noticed in a lot of the content that you put out and in the interview you did on Bigger Pockets, the way that you speak about your dad, the way that you have referenced your parents and raising you well, the, the fact that family is a core value to you. I would love to know a little bit of specifics. Like, what did your parents do? you know, for you to be as successful family focused as you are, like what, what are the key things for all of the entrepreneur people out there that might struggle with the balance between family? What are, what are some of the advice that you can give them? Um, I mean, I was lucky. My parents got divorced when I was two, but my parents both like gave me all the love I could have ever wanted. And that's not available for everybody. So this isn't like a blueprint to being successful only comes from like parental love, but I was very fortunate like that. My dad came from nothing. Uh, his dad was a gambler. So every time he would get a cool car, it would come get repossessed. And my dad was just like a focused person. He was a, a lawyer who learned about real estate. And my this is a great explanation of my dad. And I think this is something I'm literally the same way. Growing up, my dad had 
built a pretty sizable asset base and people thought we were quote rich, which I guess technically at the time we were, we've always lived in nice houses, but my, again, my dad came from nothing, but my dad is the type of guy to show up in a brand new car and get out in like tennis shorts and like a wife beater. That's a terrible term now, but a tank top. (laughs) And like, everyone's like, that's your dad. He looks like he's like, you know, mowing the lawn. I'm like, he is mowing the lawn first of all. And yeah, that's my dad. (laughs) And so I think when you talk about humility, Uh, I was always someone who I'm not out there to tell people what I have. That's why I'm not obsessed with the doors or my personal net worth. Like my closest friends don't even know what I have or what I do. They just know that I'm comfortable. And I think that my parents taught me, my mom died when I was 20. My dad died when I was 33. They just taught me to be confident by not putting a whole bunch of rules on me. And I learned everything I know about real estate from my dad, even when I was too young to know I was learning it. And so I think like, you know, I'm, I have a 21 and a 19 year old now. And I think that I learned a lot from my parents, but as a parent, you're like still always learning. And I know even though both of them aren't super interested in real estate investing now, as they get older, just like I did, they get more and more questions about like, well, that sounds pretty cool. And every conversation I can have like that is the bridge to like how I finally got there myself. Yeah, absolutely. And just to dive in a little bit deeper to that, can you go into and describe um, the, you said your parents showed you great love. Can you describe like, what exactly was that? Like, how did you know that they loved you? Was it, was it words? Were they just telling you that they loved you? Was it the amount of time that you spent with you? Like what, what were, what was meaningful to you? Yeah. My mom was a single mom because my parents got divorced, but we ate dinner at the table together uh, every single night. And again, if you don't eat dinner at the table with your parents, like that's okay too. But yeah, my mom always told me that she loved me. I, I, I think like, you know, we were talking before about like, you know, disclosing mental illness or like things that are not perfect. I think it goes the other way too. You know, there's so many people who grow up not telling their family that they love them or their friends that they love them because they find it to be like embarrassing, but like that's your support system and people need to know that stuff. I just always knew they were there for me. After my mom died at 20, I I mean, I called my mom, I talked to my mom every single day, you know, after we didn't live together, after I went to boarding school. And I talked to my dad on the phone every single day until he died. And I just think that's the type of relationships that I want to build. Again, I don't want to talk on the phone with people, but like I have a lot of friends. I just text with them every day. Texting is a great mechanism for me because it takes the edge off trying to like sit around on the phone. But I mean, I think, you know, we talked before about things that you've learned and I've just learned like if you if you want to tell someone that you appreciate them, like go tell them now because you don't know what's around the corner. And I don't want to, you know, be like all the studies have said, I don't want to be one of those person who eventually ends up on their deathbed with regret. And, you know, I would also have regret if I didn't act like myself, you know, again, I'm not everyone's cup of tea, but I also don't care. You know, I'm here to, for my closest family and friends and to, to give as much value to the people who want to listen. And, the world's huge. I'm like a pea, you know, nobody knows me. The world's gigantic. I'm an absolute nobody. And so are all of us. So, you know, why would I get so excited about trying to, you know, build a call to action for something where I can just give out the information, um, for free for now. 
What a tremendous answer. Like I could honestly just hear the warmth come from your voice when you talk about the way your parents raised you and, and, and things of that nature. You know, not everybody has that benefit. Some people have a more rougher upbringing, but ultimately our yeah. life is by our design. Um, and wherever you end up, no matter what your previous circumstances are, it is always the person in the mirror that is responsible. Um, we have to get into this. There's no way we could do this show without it because we were talking mixed yep. use before and you were talking about a very awesome strategy in order to do so with yeah. FHA. So let's get into that. Let's dive into how to use an FHA yeah. loan to do mixed use properties. Yeah. So most people, you know, when they're thinking of house hacking, they're thinking specifically of multifamilies and using the FHA when available to make that happen, live in it for one year and then pop out after a year refinance, do it again. The interesting thing about mixed use, which is a hybrid of commercial and residential, is that you can use an FHA loan on a mixed use property if the residential portion is 51% of the square feet or more. So if you're looking at a property pretty simply, and there's uh, two units of, re of commercial downstairs, and then there's four units on top, two floors, like you can, you can house hack that. It's we've we've seen it done. We closed a, a, a sale on a listing for one of my friends and the buyer did the same thing because there was a laundromat downstairs and there was three units up there upstairs. And, it, it, you know, mixed use is interesting. <clears throat> Retail, sometimes you have to wait a little longer to fill your spots, but you're also likely looking at three to five year leases if you're smart. Those are going to be more standard retail. They're going to do a lot of their own build out. So you're going to reduce the cost there. They're going to pay almost all of their everything, you know, other than like water. So to me, those are, it's just, again, like we were saying in the beginning, it's a mixture of, of, of things that you have available a little bit more steady on the tenancy. And like we were talking about in the pre-call, the, the one thing I like about mixed use Matt, you're experiencing now specifically is that mixed use is absolutely perfect if you have your own business or you have someone who will come in and rent a business. Like for me, I was under contract on a mixed use here in my town that I may still try to buy. And I was going to have my team in one side and have one of my attorney's offices in there. And then I was going to open an independent bookstore and have my kids run it on the other side. Cause I just like cool stuff. Like I said, I, I, I and I think like, if you have a mixed use, you could just decide to start a business, you know, the business that you always wanted. You're like, well, crap. I, I mean, I have a retail space. Let's just go for it. If it doesn't work out. Okay. I'll just get another renter in there. And that's like real estate like that is, you know, it's diversified in its nature and it's still one full property, but you have a lot of opportunity there. So I, I love the idea of house hacking a mixed use. I think it's tremendously smart. And you can be in a cool location because a lot of those mixed use are on Main Street, you know, in towns where there's stuff going on. And now you're talking about a lot of different options for what you can do there. This is so true. Yeah. And we were talking about a pre-call. I'm actually in a building that's part of this same type of thing. The, the tenants in the front houses are paying the entire bill for this property. And we have this 1800 exactly. square foot building that we get to operate our podcast in. So th this, this hits home deeply. There was something that you said too that I really love in in on another show where it talked about you believe that the best deals to buy are the ones that you live in. Can you go deeper into that? Yeah, I so the the live in it's not even a live in flip to me. Like I think that a lot of people want to be investors and then they discount the fact that they can buy their own house. It's just a patience thing. 
you know, if you buy your own house and you enjoy living in it for five years and it goes up in value and you get 150,000, you just made $150,000 in, in four years. Like, are you, do you not like that? You know, there's just a patience thing to think that as an investor, oh, you need to cash flow. I don't care. I, I'm fortunate enough to not have to care about cash flow in my investments, but I try to get both. But I like appreciation better. Appreciation is a sneaky windfall. So what my preference is, is to buy a house, live in it. Sometimes I'll do a little work up front, never all of it, because I usually don't have enough time. Like I only had 30 days in my current house to renovate, so I couldn't do anything. But so I owned a house in Montclair for six years. I didn't really do any work on it. I bought that house for 565. Uh, I lived there for six years with my kids. And then when I left, I found another place, moved to it. And then I did a full on renovation because like I was saying in the pre-call, I, I already had the appreciation. So I'm already up a couple hundred thousand. Now, if I do the back end flip at the end, I already know I have all that money. So like, what's the worst thing that can happen? I'm going to make money. So I ended up doing that. It sold for 883. Now it's probably worth like, you know, 1.4, which is great because not only did I do well, the person that I sold it to has done well too. So it's like a win-win prophecy. So I just feel like investors need to get away from, like we said in the beginning, it's not just one thing or the other. You want to, you should live a nice life. And if you, maybe you live in a condo first, a lot of what the advice we give for, for house hackers who can't win with an FHA is like buy a condo live in it for one year, then rent it the next year so you can start to practice as a landlord. Then after that first year of rental, do you like the tenant or not? Maybe sell it, convert that into to an upgrade property because you have appreciation. And that's how you can learn from one property, three different types of assets. You'll, you'll have done your own live-in, then you have been become a landlord, and then you basically done a flip if you do a little work at the end. So... Gosh, I love this. And this kind of puts a nice little bow on it too, because the beginning of the episode, you started off by telling us a lack of knowledge, intuition, and research led you from selling a property at 1.4 all the way down to 800. At the end of the episode, you're giving us a story about buying at 800 and selling at 1.4. Um, so very, very, very cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, if you had a billion dollars in the bank, and a hundred lifetimes of cash flow, because obviously with your gifting, your intelligence, your hard work, your self-awareness, all these things, you built a nice little empire for yourself and a, and a business that you love. But let's just say we slapped a billion dollars extra in your bank account and, and, and gave you an, an additional portfolio. How would you structure your time? What would your life look like? This, to, I'm being completely honest. It wouldn't be very much different than what I'm doing right now. Uh, I probably... I'd be a little bit more out of the role. I wouldn't be in production in real estate anymore, but honestly, I would still have to be in production to make sure that my agents can see that I've done what they've done. I love real estate. I'd be just playing with higher end assets, to be honest, doing higher end flips. Maybe I'd, I'd leverage a little bit higher risk on some of the stuff that I do, but I'm just calculated risk anyway. I've never done a deal where I thought there was any chance of me really losing money. And even in those disaster years, like you just get caught. The economy does something. I was in Florida, which that happens. You know, Florida gets hit hard when it goes down. So I don't think I do that much different. I, I would probably give more money away and be more charitable. But I've done things. I work with a company called Give Back Homes um, and we work together. Uh, I did a build trip in Nicaragua where we went and build homes in Nicaragua for three families. And I mean, I probably just do stuff like that more often and... I was offering everything, all of my resources for free now. So I probably do the same thing then. 
Absolutely love it. You know, I don't think we've had anybody yet say that they would just sit on the beach and sip a margarita. Um, the entrepreneurs, we that think differently, boring. right? That sounds boring. As you said, it sounds absolutely it terrible. It might be cool for a day, an afternoon, perhaps, but I mean, I'm not something for that like I do every 40, day. 47 minutes. Yeah. So I'm fine. That's like <laughs> I enough. I can yeah. relate. I'll take my family to the beach and I'll be like, all right, I'm ready to go when you guys are. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> absolutely tremendous, man. Um, Jonathan Green, what is your vision for the next 12 to 18 months? What are you looking to accomplish in 2023 and beyond? Yeah, it's good because I've been working on it. So I ha like I said, I have a big team called Streamline Properties on Market. We're brokered by eXp Realty. That's really my focus. Uh, so we're training agents. We're going to hire probably 50 new agents this year. Uh, so we'll get close to the 100 range at some point and expanding in states. We're in four states now. Um, but we're, we're you know generally based in New Jersey. We're going to expand Philadelphia a lot. But like in terms of myself, I'm going to work on this house that I live in right now. Uh, and slowly do right now. I flip with my best friend, Jenny. We flip like one house at a time because I we're obsessed with like the actual house, like the house that we're flipping now. I, I love it. So I'm just going to probably slowly build that. But uh, again, not looking to acquire a billion doors because that's a billion headaches. My coaching stuff will probably grow. But again, within the same format, we do a lot of in-person meetups presenting the art of real estate investing. We do one meetup a week. And I think uh, one thing that we talked about that's really important is that's a really important thing for everybody. I love meeting the people that I communicate and email with, doing Zooms, building real relationships. And as you get into investing, that's how you really end up doing JV deals and things like that. But, you know, growth on the on-market side, I think you know, at some point I'll be out of the production uh, of being an agent. And that's as my agents who are already doing a great job rise. And I know I, can, I count on them to take, you know, all the high end leads that I'm working now. Absolutely tremendous. I have full, I have full faith that you're going to accomplish 95% <laughs> of those goals at a bare minimum. Um, can't wait till you have a hundred agents. I'm just going to throw this out of here because we were talking about family before, and I could just see the passion for you in the actual house that you're buying. Like you, like I have a love for it. And like, and we were talking about the feel before. So like, I'll say the thing that my dad says, I'm second generation, by the way. So in, in agency and investing, it's like what he'll yeah. say about a purchase. Like if he's investing, he's going to look, it's like, if I don't feel aroused, I don't buy it. <laughs> so I feel like that might relate like to that. you. Yeah, I, don't, I, I yeah. feel like, um, yeah, I feel like that would be a, a, a correlation to the way that you think. So I, I figured I'd throw that out there. Um, Jonathan Green, man, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for giving us a glimpse into your life and into your business. And to those of you out there chasing freedom, freedom is accomplished one action at a time. And we give assignments now. So what I want you to do within the next seven days is go check out John Green's, Jonathan Green, excuse me, TikTok and Instagram. Go watch some walkthroughs that he's doing because he is going to show you exactly how he gets the feel. Learn that feel from a master and then go out there and start looking at properties yourself so you could develop that feel and take action. Tell somebody you know that can hold you accountable. And before you know it, you too will be living a life of freedom. Thank you for tuning in and we'll catch you on the next one.